peace. <laughs> the question would be, do you have God's peace in your life today? Because we learn in chapter 3 that, yes, the fruit of righteousness, God's righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus clothes us when we come and are born again, he clothes us with his righteousness, not our righteousness, our righteousness, and our, our clothes are filthy rags, the scripture says. The only thing that makes us clean is our right relationship with him. And there's two different types of wisdoms we've been listening to last week. And that is the wisdom that comes from above or the wisdom that comes from below. And we see there in verse 17, if you remember, God's wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle and willing to yield and full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. That you know when I know when someone is speaking and when you're listening and you're hearing even the little voices in your head. If it doesn't line up with that, that's not God's wisdom. If it's not first pure coming into your mind or what's being said to you, that's not God's wisdom. That is man's wisdom. That's, be very careful what someone's telling you. If it's not peaceable, it's not gentle, it's not willing to yield, it's very prideful in nature, you know that is not God's wisdom. Why? We saw in verse 14 and 15 what is not God's wisdom. It says, but if you have Bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. So if it's not coming from the word of God, it's not coming of God's wisdom, we know where it's coming from. It's somewhere very earthly, very sensual, and very demonic in nature. You know it's darkness. So you can, you and I, as we walk our lives in, in doing our business at work and in the neighborhoods and even in the church and in communities and when you're listening to people and stuff, you can tell if this is wisdom from God or if it's demonic, it's sensual, it's, it's earthly, it's worldly is what we refer to it. It's not difficult if you're walking in the spirit and truth to see these things. James continues in here in chapter 4. Remember, there's no break in, in, the, in, the, in his letter. There's no chapters, there's no verses when uh, the Holy Spirit gave James the, the, the God's word. It was all one continuous letter. So he continues in his letter here and he contrasts what he just said. The fruit of righteousness that comes from God, that is godly wisdom. It is sown. It is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's the type of person he's referring to. That, or what he says in James chapter 4, verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires? From pleasure that war in your members? So he starts off right here in verse 1, describing a couple of questions. I love how sometimes questions really pulls out the heart of what he's trying to get someone to speak about or come to realization. We see here in the scripture, where do wars or the polemic or polemus is the Greek word. It means to debate. Where's where are these debates going on within the church? Because James obviously is dealing still with conflict within the early church. So he's saying to his brothers and sisters, and notice in the tone of this part of the letter, he does not start off by this transition referring to my dear brothers or my brethren. He's, he's in the rest of the part, first part of the letter, if you remember, it's always starting off by a relationship. Brethren, 
My sisters and brothers. Now, he's trying to, that, that love that he has from. Here, he's getting very stern. He's getting very direct because he's getting to the heart of the problem because there's such conflict within the early church. So he's asking, why is all these, where are all these debates coming from? Where's all these butting of heads within the church? Why is that happening? Why is there fights? Why is there contentions? Why are you grappling with people and fighting for positions and, and power? And, and remember, because some are wanting to be teachers of the word, which they should not have been teachers. They were trying to put themselves into positions and power and prestige and, and, and notoriety and, and to puff themselves up in the church because this was the early church. They were still trying to figure themselves out in regards to the old religious religiosity way of the Jewish faith. And then Gentiles coming in who didn't have any faith and they're coming in and they're blending and trying to find this this relationship with Christ. Yes, we know who Jesus is. Yes, but how do we now live that faith out? And then with that, when people are still trying to die of self and live for Christ, conflict, strife comes within relationships. It will come. So James is going to address it today. He's going to call it out. This is what's happening. But he's going to give us the solution. He's going to diagnose the issue of the heart of the people in that church. And he's going to give them the, uh, the healing or the solution or the, 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 the prescription of how to get healed. So that this conflict, this strife that's happening between people in your community, between you and your labor, you at work, or you with, within the church... Let's get this solved so that you clearly understand, because this cannot continue. So what does he say? He asks the question for them to ponder on. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires? For your pleasure, that war in your members? The word desired here is also referred to as lust. It's the same Greek word as hedoni or a hedonist. It means someone who is self-centered or pleasure seeker. They're always looking for something that pleases them. I, that's what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I want that. And I want to be able to do whatever I want to do and wherever I want to do it and however I want to do it. And no one's going to tell me because that's what I want now, that never happens in the church, does it? Only happens at work. Or maybe in the home. No, no, it happened even in the early church. It still happens today. Anyone who doesn't have their heart right, and they're a heteronist, or a, a heterony, which is the Greek word here for desires, desires what? What kind of desires James calling out? Self-seeking, self-centered pleasures that are what is causing you to be at war, to be in fights with people that are next to you. It's not always from the demons. It's not always from Satan. He, trust me, Satan is, he's playing with the guys who, and the gals who have the finger to the nuclear bombs. You know what I'm saying? That's where he's spending his life. He's not God. He can't be everywhere, but he has a lot of uh, followers of demonic forces of darkness and all kinds of levels of that are, are following over nations. But it's called darkness. And that darkness can play around with you and me individually or even a nation as a whole. 
But he says, why do we have these ch- conflicts? What are we seeing in our world today? It boils down in every aspect of great conflict, is it not? Do we have an economic uh, conflict? Yes. Do we have political conflict? Yes. Do we have militarily conflict? Nationally, globally, culturally, community? The tragedy of Buffalo, tragedy in Texas, tra- these things are major conflicts. These are darknesses creeping over not only in globally, not only in nation, not only communities, but within families and in the church. Why? Because people are self-seeking. They're selfish. They want power. They want position. They want they, their pride is what drives them. And James is saying to them here and says that by the power of the Holy Spirit says to us, stop debating. Stop fighting. Stop struggling. Stop wrestling. Stop butting heads with people. It's destroying your family. It's destroying the church. It destroys communities. It destroys nations. That is what we are going to see and continue to see because God said we would see these things in the end times. But it should not happen within the church of followers of Jesus Christ. It should not happen. It must stop. Why is this happening? Because people are being unfaithful to God. They have chosen, even in the fact that they call themselves a Christian, they are still turning from God to idols of this world. That is why you have conflict. He says to you and I, and the Spirit says to you, do you know why you have conflict? Because the conflict is in your heart. And when you have conflict, you're not getting what you want, it will have a rippling effect around people around you. It didn't start with your past and what your parents did to you. It's not didn't what someone did to you while you were young or old. It is not how you missed out on the job position. It is not the politics. It's not the president. It's not the culture. It's not this. It's not that. It is you. It is me. That's what the scripture tells us. We are warring inside our heads and our hearts. And it will always come out and cause conflict with those around us. Because we're not getting what we want. That's why we have to less of me and more of him. That's why we have to die as self and let him reign in our life. God of this world is Satan. It's darkness. We, we worship, we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That is light. James accurately describes this strife. He doesn't start off by sense, you know, this kind of sensitive type kind of thing. He just says battles are happening among Christians because they're bitter and they're, and they're severe because they, their hearts are not right with God. Because they come from within a heart going against God. Your heart is going against God when you selfishly want what you want. And that's what's causing the wars and fights in the church. We must understand the essence of sin is selfishness. 
But what does God call us to do? To be at strife? To be at conflict? To be disunited? No, he calls us to unity as, as brothers. We see that in Psalm 133. Only two places in the scriptures it calls out unity in a brotherhood as, a, as calls out. I mean, throughout scriptures, unity is, is throughout. But he calls it, for instance, Psalm 133, 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Because it is good. We even see in Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you want to have peace? Then keep the unity. How do you keep the unity? Die of self. Learn to live for God and live for others. The joy comes first by focusing on Jesus as number one in your life. Then others. You're last. And that's hard. To learn to love God, serve God, and to love and serve others. Without you saying, what can I get out of this? What can I gain from this? What can I just take from this? That is a heart you know if that is how you think. You're not there yet in your maturity. Because remember, the whole theme of James is all about spiritual maturity. And this kind of war and fights within the heart of themselves now coming out into the hearts of others, that's what's causing them from not being able to mature spiritually. And receiving the blessings that come from living a life surrendered to God. A heart truly, I, am, I, I love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, all my strength. We know that unity is certainly implied throughout the scriptures. In Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will, and you will knock. You'll find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The scripture tells us this, you can have unity. You can not be warring and fighting in your heart and among people. There can be a peace. It may even go beyond your own understanding, the scripture says. You're like, how is this all happening? Why is there such a unity and love? Because God is reigning within the hearts of the people, specifically yours. What does he say? Because it starts with the desires and the desires are wrong, and it must change. We continue here in verse 2. You lust. It means an intense desire. And do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So in verse 2 here of chapter 4, James continues by saying, You lust for what? You lust for selfish desires. These, these are dangerous things when you're selfishly focused on yourself. It always causes conflict within the house. It always causes conflict within a, in a group or even a business setting or a kind of a, any kind of a group or two or more. When someone's selfish and wants to get what they want, it always causes conflict. Look at children. That beautiful, perfect little child. They can do no wrong. 
Let me reemphasize, that's a wicked little sinner until they're saved. <laughs> they want what they want, and they will let you know it. There's no filter for them. But I wish when people become adults, they won't act like a child. But they still do. Why? Because the heart hasn't changed. That shouldn't be. We should mature. Physically, yes. But we're talking about spiritual maturity. Because if you don't, you're going to have spiritual conflict. And if you have spiritual conflict, there's division, there's darkness, and there's not unity. There's not love. There's not going to be growth. There's not going to be a changed life. And so he says, you lust, you have this intense desire. But notice what James says, but you don't have, you do not have. You're not going to gain from that. You think you're gaining, but you're not going to gain. You murder, he's not referring to a murder like as in killing somebody. He's saying in the heart, you murder, you go against someone. It's like that sensitivity. Oh, can you see that? Look at that, new, look at that car. They got a brand new car. How can they get that car? I, I bet you they're not even paying tithes. I bet you they're not even giving at all. That's how they can afford that. Like, I should have something like that. Did you hear that? They bought another house. Why do they need a bigger house? I don't think it's godly. It goes on and on and on in the hearts of people. Why do they war against what other people, what God's doing? It's because they're comparing and they desire with envy and jealousy because they want what you have. That's why there's a war in that person's mind. Sometimes it's only in their own minds they never say it because they're mature, they're, they're spiritual. But it's still in the mind. God sees all things, hears all things, he knows all things, he knows what you're thinking. It's only a matter of time what's in the heart with what? We learned already in the first three chapters. It will come off of that tongue. Oh, that little wicked thing. If it's not self-controlled by the Spirit of God. It will say what's on your heart. You will speak your mind, as you would say. And you think you have this freedom to speak your mind. If it's not godly, you should hold that mind. We learned that in the first three chapters, did we not? So he says here, you even murder, you, you covet. You covet. These are the signs when you know you're not right with God. You're not maturing in spiritually. You have the spiritual conflict within your, in your own heart right now. And it's coming out and affecting everybody around you. You're murdering. You're, you're really thinking like you want to tear someone down in your heart. You want to bring them down from what God is doing in and through their hearts. You're, you're always critical spirited. And you're coveting what they're doing and what God's doing through it. What do you mean they get to do that? I want that ministry. I want to be in that person who does in the ministry. I want to be able to be able to have control over this. I, it goes on and on because the heart's not right. And James is saying you're going to covet, you're going to murder. But you still cannot obtain. And when you can't obtain it, what happens? Hello? What happens? You become more frustrated. It builds up and it comes out in what? You fight and war. You're going to go to battle. Why? 
because you're willing to fight and war to get what you want. Because you're not, your needs are not being met. Your wants are not being met. Yet, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Oh, and I love this part because the first thing out of that person's mind is, I've been asking. I've been asking and asking and asking and asking. I've been telling God, I want this. That's your problem. You're telling God, who's the King of kings and Lord of lords, what you are telling him what you're going to ask. See, your heart's not right. You don't tell the Lord what you want. You don't get to control your life as a child of God. Parents, kids do not rule the house. The parents are in charge and responsible for the house. They're accountable, accountable to God to raise you up until you're old enough to live on your own and you're in full responsibility when you're no longer under that roof. Now we see here, you don't ask. Because you don't, you're not getting, because you're not getting the desires of pleasure that you were looking for. You're not only is it in a life of conflict, but it's also fundamentally unsatisfied life that you're experiencing, and you don't like this. You don't like this feeling that you're unsatisfied, that you're you just just seem so unhappy and unfulfilled and not meeting all your needs perfectly from that person or people, and, and it just gets really frustrating. Well, that's your problem within your heart. Only God can complete you. Only God can fill all your needs and meet all your needs. This is the, the tragic irony of life, isn't it? Living after the worldly and fleshly desires. It never reaches the goal that you always wanted and think you're going to achieve. We've all been there, have we not? Bought the car, perfect car, my dream car. Biggest dent and scratch from someone within a, within a day. Bought the most beautiful, perfect house and everything, and that house wasn't as perfect as you thought. Got the great dream job, and it's completely destroying you. Happens when you, you, you rely upon the worldly things and the worldly desires and what the world offers. The things that we call worldliness of a lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the definition of worldliness that we see in the scripture. These things, when you chase after these things, you will not obtain what you think you're going to have. And that is a satisfied, content life. You will never meet it, it will never happen. You may talk yourself, talk yourself into thinking that, but the, you're, if it goes opposite of the scripture, you're, you're, you're just fooling yourself. You've been deceived. This, like the scripture says, you've been bewitched. It's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. You've been bewitched. You've convinced yourself that these things is just not true. But when you start pursuing the things of this world and not the things of God, 
this lust for the world, the animal appetites. You're trying to fulfill a sinful desire because you think or you hope that it may bring satisfaction in your life. But it won't. James says it won't. But I've been asking. And I've been asking. And James reminds them how great power of prayer is and why one may live, you know, this unnecessarily a spiritual pauper, spiritually poor, because they do not ask God. But you, and, and many people will say, I am asking, I am praying. Now, most of the time when you really listen to you, you're just talking to yourself. James makes it even clear to them because I think he's really it just a, absolutely incredibly smart because he has God's wisdom here. He says, you do not ask. He answers that question because he knows what people are going to say next. So he says it right there in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. The same word, hedoni, same pleasures, lust, same, same Greek word here. The problem is, is that you are maybe be asking, but you're asking amiss. The Greek word here is kakos. It's the only word, or the only two words in the Greek in the entire scripture that talks about this evil intention or their, this wrong, evil, wicked intentions. And kakos is it. That you may spend, meaning whatever you get, you're going to spend. The word in the Greek here is wasteful. You're going to waste whatever it is you're saying because what you're asking God is wicked. It goes against the word of God. It goes against what God wants for your life. His will. You're looking for your will. And God says, that goes against my will. You're asking amiss. It's just not going to be heard. Oh, how many times when you look back hindsight and say, I am so glad God didn't answer that prayer that I asked. Because if he gave me what I asked for, it would have destroyed everything. Are you with me? You've been there? He's saying to them, you ask a misc. That you spend it on your own pleasures, your own selfish problems. That's the problem. These are selfish prayers that he says. That is why you feel like you're not being heard. That's why you're not getting ahead and getting what you want. Because they're selfish prayers. When our prayer is wrong, our whole Christian life is wrong. We must remember that the purpose of prayer is not to persuade a reluctant God to give you something. Those reluctant, I want, I have demands, and, and why isn't God giving them? Why is he so reluctant to give them to me? Because they're selfish. The purpose of prayer is to align our will with his will. To partner with him, to ask him to accomplish his will on earth. We see that in Matthew 6.10. It's, this word spend is, is interesting. 
It's the same word that we see from the prodigal son in Luke 15, 14, where the prodigal son says, Father, I want all of my inheritance. I want everything is coming to me and I'm going to take that and I'm going out into the world and live it up the way I want to live it up. And the father gave him his wealth, his half. He took off and he spent, he wasted, he just threw it away of everything that the father has given him in his life. It's the same word. It's the same thing. He had this self-centered, self-indulgent mentality and heart, and he lost everything. Question is, is, where's your heart today? Are you asking God amiss? Selfishly. Are you spending and wasting what God has given you as a child of God? Because people who are at war with themselves because of selfish desires are always unhappy people. They never enjoy life. They're not thankful. They're not grateful. They complain about everything and anything that they can possibly put their hand on and everyone that comes with it. Why? Because it's not the people It's themselves that they're warring within themselves. That's the problem. Instead of seeking God's will, we tell God what he is supposed to do. And then we get really angry if he doesn't do when we ask him and he's not obedient to us. And does what we want when we want it. And then we get, we would never do it because, of course, you're spiritually mature. You would never say you're angry with God because you know the Christian answer to that. Can you be angry with God? Of course you know. The first grader in there can tell you, no, you can't be angry with God. So you know spiritually, you know you can't say that out loud, but that doesn't change the fact that your heart still is angry with God. And then this anger at God eventually will spill out and will get angry with God's people. It's only a matter of time. In verse 4, James doesn't take the pressure off. He actually uses the Old Testament to really bring to light to these Jewish followers of Jesus now. He really turns on the power. Now, you think this is not seeker sensitive here, conversation. He calls them, you adulterers and adulteresses. Why is that significant in the scripture? Because in those times, if you're an adulterer or adulteress, you are to die. Because it was that wicked. You're going against God, and that was the punishment. That was the consequence for your selfish desires to, to mess around with another person that's not your husband or not your wife. There was no flexibility on that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Whoa! Ponder on that one right there, my my brothers and sisters. James is saying it's like an adulteress. 
It's just like someone who's sleeping around. What the effect that would have on her husband, knowing she's sleeping around. He's saying to them, you are acting and playing with the world. You want the world more than God. Do you know you're an adulteress? He's saying right here, if, do you not know the friendship, the, the, the worldly, the world loves you? The, lo- the world wants to engulf you? Now keep in context here. He's saying the world outside of these walls is trying to become friends with you and me in the church to be like the world. The world is creeping into the church, my brothers and sisters. He's saying, if you just understand, you allow the world to come into the church. You bring worldly things. You war and fight like you're in the world. You're an, that's an enmity with God. You're in absolute conflict and war with God. And he takes it even one step further. He says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend... Of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do I need to explain that? Do you know who is a perfect poster child of this? Is Demas. Do you remember Demas that we studied in 2 Timothy 4:10? And other two other places in the scripture. Where Paul says, oh, Demas says, hello, <laughs> there, he's with me in the ministry, he's doing great. Next time he says, oh yeah, Demas is here. The third time he references in the scripture for Demas in 2 Timothy uh, 4.10 is Demas, having loved this present world, has departed. He's no longer anywhere to be found. He took off to foreign lands. Why? Because he went from, I want the things of God. I want to be doing God's work. I want to be in his will. I want to love him with all my heart, mind, soul. But then you creep into the, allow the world to come into your life, come into the church. There's going to be division in the church. If you allow this darkness to creep into your life, you now become an enemy of God. You're going against God. And there is no gray area. There's no neutral zone. I can play a little bit, one foot with God, one foot in the world, and I can try to keep that balance. There is no such thing. If you want the things of this world, and that is more important, it's idolatry, you like the things the world offers, that's what you please, that's what you pursue, that's what you want, that's what you want to gain from, you want to fill your life with the worldly things. I'm just telling you what the scripture says for us, you and I, as a warning. Your friend of the world makes him, you and I, an enemy of God. And then you ask why when you ask him to help you out of a situation that you hear nothing. Because you've been an enemy of God. The The word world here, in context, this means this word means anti- uh, uh, antagonistic or 
influences by the darkness or influences by Satan, the God of this world. That's the world he's talking about. He's not talking about like the world in Genesis where God created the heavens and the earth, that world description. He's talking about the world that Satan is running and controlling and offering to you daily. Oh, Apostle John defines this so clearly, does he not? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. See, James using this term adulterer and adulteresses brings out the Old Testament vocabulary. Because if you remember, in the Old Testament, when his people were attracted to some form of idolatry in the world, the, the nations around them were attracting them into adultery, following false gods and statues and all kinds of emblems and everything. It was rampant then, it's still rampant today. In the form of religiosity. You can go back, study Jeremiah chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 6, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, Hosea chapter 3. So many examples in the Old Testament that God refers to when they chase after these idols, these, these religious idols in the high places, in these temples, and all these things. What you're doing is your idolatry. You're an enemy of God when you do these things. You're coveting the idolatry. Colossians 3.5 speaks to that. You're wanting to have friendship with the things of this world. And according to this picture, God is the husband and we are his wife. We see that in Isaiah chapter 54. Jeremiah chapter 3, Exodus 34, where God says he is the husband figure, we are the bride figure. And when we say we no longer want to devote our life completely to our husband, we now want to go and chase after others, it's adultery. You're going against God. So the Jews understood this language very clearly because of their covenant with God. As they got married, they were espoused to a husband for one year prior to commencing or fulfilling that oneness at the celebration after one year of preparation. But during that espousal, they were, we would call maybe engagement, is they were considered married in the Jewish faith. So as he went off to prepare a place, to get the place ready to come and then get his bride during at the, after a year of preparation, to bring him, take her home and, and to commence and to fulfill that, that, that marriage. If she turned against and started messing around with other guys, she was an adulteress because they saw they were married in that position. It's the same thing for you and I, my brothers and sisters. Jesus is the husband. He is, he's the groom. He's coming back for the bride. Who is the bride in the scripture? The church. You and I. 
So when you're sitting there, we're waiting. We're, we're sitting here waiting for our groom to come and take us and rapture us and take us home. We've, we're already spoken for. So how dare we go and chase idols of this world? We are to completely devote our life to Christ and him alone. Waiting with great anticipation for him to call us and bring us. He's prepared a place for us in heaven. The scripture's clear on that. We're just waiting. And in the meantime, we worship him. We worship our God. We worship our Savior. We, we devote and we just do whatever it needs He wants us to do. We live a life that's pleasing to Him. James recognizes that we cannot both be friends of this world system in rebellion against God and friends of God at the same time, Matthew 6, 24. Even the desire to be a friend, wants to be a friend of the world, makes one an enemy of God. Verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? This is probably, as, as you would read any commentary or anyone who's teaching, it's one of the most difficult verses to understand. But if you just take that in two separate sections... Or do you think that the scripture says is vain? Meaning, is empty and have no value. Well, I just said to you, do you think what the God says is, is that just of no value? There's just vainness? There's, no, there's nothing good about that? Or are you questioning God's word? That's what people do. People are always questioning the scripture because it doesn't fit with their selfish desires. It doesn't fit with the world that they desire to pursue. So they question the scriptures and they stop reading the scriptures. They don't want anything, they don't even want to know the scriptures except only some really good promises that they can hold on to and really hope for. Just the fire insurance. I'm saved. I'm going to be going to heaven. That's all I need. That's the only part of the scripture I want. That's not how it works. But the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. God, the Father said, when Jesus ascended, he would send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within a believer of Jesus Christ. That helper is to help us to understand and to reveal the truths of God from his word. It is to empower us to do the work that God is calling us to do for him. It's, it empowers us to go out and reach the lost who are going to hell because they do not have a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They may have religion. They may have the world. They may have themselves. And they may say, I don't believe in anything. But we are to reach them. Why? Because Jesus loves them. And because he loves them, he calls us to be his instruments to go out and share this unconditional love, this love to them of the truth that he died for their sins on the cross. And what happens here is that the Spirit, when you start loving the world and you start going against 
God and you become an enemy and you start striving and warring and fighting among the people. He, the Spirit dwells earnestly, jealously. It's the idea that God loves men with such a passion that he cannot bear any other love in our hearts that goes against him. God loves you that much, he's willing to fight for you. It's like a husband and wife. If a wife cheats on the husband, the husband is going to have a jealousy of the fact that his wife has now has a heart for another man. The Holy Spirit is jealous for you. He wants your complete love for him. And no other idol, no other God, no little God, no little G's, no, no nothing of this world. James says, he's a jealous God. And he'll go to great lengths to get your attention. Not only to be saved, but once saved, to keep that relationship pure and good and right and noble and just and praiseworthy. So that the love of God reigns in your life. Now James takes the pressure off and gives them the prescription of the diagnosis of the sin that's in their life, the worldliness in their lives. He gives a prescription, the solution to the conflict. He says, it's in humility. Look at, look at what he says here. But he gives more grace of all the worldliness and all the things we're talking about, adultery and adulteresses and all these things. Understand, God's grace can change you. God's grace can reach. It's more than any of these things we've been talking about. So it's not hopeless. You can change, my brothers and sisters. We can change by the grace of God because he gives more grace. A grace covers the multitude of what? The sin. So therefore, knowing this, therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Your self-seeking, prideful heart, it's got to go. Because you're an enemy against God. But he gives grace to the humble. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself. Understand you need to die of self and put yourself last. And God first. The same Holy Spirit convicting us of our compromise will also grant us grace to serve God and to live for God. But he gives more grace, stands in a strong contrast with those previous words of going against God. He says, but my grace is sufficient. I can overcome this in your life if you would just turn your heart toward me. And he gives it more specifically, he says right here, therefore, submit to God. It's a call to repentance. 
a change of heart. He says, call, submit to God. It's that light of the grace offered to humble people. If you humble yourself and submit your life to God, this means this fresh new commitment to God. Commit today. God, I'm starting over. I'm committing my life to you. I'm starting. I've, I've said it before, but I went back in the world. I'm refreshed, committed to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm getting rid of the idols. I'm getting rid of the desires of worldliness. I'm not going to pursue the things of this world. I'm going to pursue the things that pleases you and of this world, waiting with anticipation you coming home and taking us home, I should say. He says, submit. But because understand, the throne you bow your knee to determines the authority you walk in. This word submit to God is a military term. And as a lower ranking military person, you are to submit to the general, to submit to the seniority of that military structure. You and I are to submit to the throne of God and not to the throne of Satan. Because whoever you're bowing your knee to is the one you're going to follow. Submit to God. If there is any area of your life that keeps you back from God, there will always be battles in your life and it's going to make you squirrely. Mentally, you're going to go out of, out of, out of control. And when you mentally start having mental issues, it's only a matter of time it will play out in battles and wars with the people around you. It's only a matter of time. God says in his word, his word can transform your mind. I don't see any other promise anywhere else. God Almighty says your mind is squirrely. It's mentally not stable. You can transform your mind by the reading and the studying of the word of God. You're not at peace? Study the word of God. Draw, submit to your life to God. He says that to the second thing. The second, he gives ten things. Commandments or imperatives in here of the solution to these battles, these wars that happen between people, even spiritual conflicts. Here's the resolution. He says, not only do you submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. To solve the problems of carnality and in your life, the ones that the worldliness in your life, you need to resist. Why is there strife? You need to resist it. Everyone blames the devil, but it's not really the devil. It's the darkness and the things that he represents and sows into this world that you dabble with. That is what you're dealing with. You must resist it. And he gives you the power as a, a child of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to resist it. Resist comes from two Greek words, stand against. So James is saying, do you want to stop these wars and these conflicts within the church? You need to stand against those things that are dark. You've got to stand against it, stand firm, because that darkness will cause your life to ravel within and affect everyone around you. That's why in 1 Thessalonians it says, stay away from all forms of evil. 
It is a really short verse. I can even memorize it. It doesn't matter if you can memorize it. The question is, will you apply it? Don't be just hearers of the word. James said in the beginning in chapter 1, be doers of the word. So why do we watch what we watch when it's a form of evil? Why do we talk about and re-talk about and talk about more about the things of evil? Why do you listen to it? Why do you hear it? Why do you take it in? Why do you judge it? Why do you read it? We're supposed to stay away from all forms of evil. That's darkness, the same word. Why? Because he says if you don't, you're not resisting the devil. You're opening yourselves up to darkness coming into your life. Resist by faith. And the rest of the spiritual armor that we see that we must put on in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. And when you resist, what will happen? What's the promise? He will flee from you. And I wish it was only one time. I wish that only when the you know, demonic forces come after me, it was only one time deal. But you resist it and say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's against God. He just looks for another tactic, like a lion crouched down waiting for the weak point to come and snatch after you. He just looked for another opportunity. And he'll come against you. And you need to resist again. And the more you resist... He continues to flee. He cannot pin you. Do you understand? He may wrestle with you. He may want to take you down and you think you're about to be pinned, but you can't be pinned. You must resist. Not only are you to submit to God, not only are you to resist the devil, look at the third, in verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What are we to do as children of God? We're to call to draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? You need to pray. You need to be in His Word. That's how He speaks to us. It's by His Word. Yes, the Bible. Not the author of someone who took something out of the Bible, maybe. But read the Word of God. He speaks to you. The Holy Spirit that lives within you illuminates truth to you. That's how you draw near to God. And the promise is what? He will draw near to you. When your soul, your person, sets your mind, your heart upon seeking after God, God sets out to meet that soul. So that while we are drawing near to him, he is drawing near to us. How do we draw? Worship him, praise him, prayer, asking God for counsel about the things that are going on in your life, enjoying communion with God, finding and asking for your direction for your life that he's created. Ask him before things go unraveled. It's always best. Then we see, not only do we submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, but look at, 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, your hands are filthy. Why? Because you're dabbling and grabbing a hold of, you've got a hold of things of this world that you should not be touching. You should not even handle it. You should not touch it. And if you did, you need to quickly repent, walk away from it, and ask God to forgive you, to cleanse you. Because you've been spotted by this world. Why do you think we come here? It's like a hospital. It's a place to come and to be able to be cleansed, to be able to, to repent and able to, and to draw close to God because he'll draw close to you because you want a fresh start because you're submitting your life again. Lord, this has been a bad week. Lord, you know how the week is. I'm coming, I'm sitting. And you've been doing that each day. You don't wait to come to Sunday to have it. It's every day. At the, you need to stay close to God. Submit your life daily. Resist the devil daily. Draw near to God daily. Cleanse yourself if there's things in your life that is creeping and spotted you up from that day. You need to just acknowledge it and purify your heart so you're not double-minded. You're not sitting there, oh, I love God, but boy, I love the world offers. A double-minded man in the scriptures, Proverbs says, is a very unstable man. You have to have, do, have nothing to do with that. Double my man is absolutely out of his mind. He's a foolish man. And we must be very careful not to get ourselves in that thing. You remember, do you remember the story of King David? He came to a point where in his life he thought he had all the power and position and, 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 and he'd be able to do whatever he wants to say and do. And he did. But he was, he, even though he was a heart after, own, God, uh, after God's own heart, he, he, he had a relationship with God. He just took his eyes off of God and submitting to God. And he didn't go do what he was supposed to, called to do and that was to go to war. And if you remember the story, he, he saw Bathsheba from a distance. And he then started contemplating how he can get her and started orchestrating and striving and, and, and just, you know, like a, like, a, like a wolf circling, trying to figure out how to get the prey. He got her. But that just start rolling down the hill and then he ends and kills her husband. Lie after lie after lie. Like he's getting away with it now and she gets pregnant. But he never... You have to always remember, God sees all things. And then it comes to light to him that God knows. And he was cut to the core, but he repented. And he resubmitted his life to God, his commitment to follow God. Yes, there's consequences and there was lots of problems and, and loss of life, of child. And it goes on and on and on. But if you remember, if you go back and read Psalm 51, you see that him writing that psalm is all about that transformation in his life from going from going and following God to walking and be an enemy to God and now coming back with this contrite heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm, 1, Psalm 51, verse 10. It was this, I know I need this new heart. That the word there 
heart or, um, or create, I should say, create, is the same Greek word or, or Hebrew word, abara, we see in Genesis 1.1, where we see God created the heavens here. It's not talking about, God, can you just comfort my heart? Can you kind of cleanse it a little bit? No, no. Give me a new heart, God. I want nothing to do anymore of my old life. I want a new life. I want a new life in you. I want the heart that you give me. That's the heart I want going forward. I don't want to have this double-mindedness. I don't want to have a divided heart over the things that I want. One foot in the world, one foot following God and serving God. No, no. I am completely, fully committed. Submitted. Resisting. Drawing, cleansing, purifying. And why? Because it brought me to this lament, verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep. Like your laughter be turned into mourning or your joy to gloom. This heaviness that will come. No longer will I going to play the game of Christianity. I'm not going to sit there and have a cheesy little Christian smile on Sundays. And I know my heart is not right. And I, if I leave here, it's completely opposite. Don't let me play religion. Don't let me play religiosity and all the, what I'm supposed to say. I want what's in my heart to be reflected out of what I say from this tongue and how I respond and love other people and love you. I want a new heart. I want a bara. Bara heart. Create in me a new heart. Renew a stead spirit within me. And then lastly, we see, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will what? Lift you up. You want to change your life today? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will lift you up out of that darkness. He will lift you up out of the miry clay. He will lift you up out of the, the darkness that is, you've allowed back into your life back into those relationships, into your family, into the church, whatever. He says, as we come as sinners before a holy God, even with this self-righteous religion, oh, Jesus addressed that. If Go back and read Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, between the Pharisee and the tax collector. We don't want to be Pharisees. We want to be humble ourselves before God and then he will lift us up because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Always lifts us up above that spiritual conflict with God and others and allows us to restore those relationships. The song that keeps playing in my head as just reading these last three verses, if you know the song, join me. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. You can repeat it. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up higher and higher, and he shall lift you up. 
please stand. Let's join. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up higher and higher. And he shall lift you up, up into heaven. And he shall lift you up. And he shall lift you up.